Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to show 406. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Hey, honestly, not kidding, what a show we've got today. Oh man, it gets better and better. I'll tell you what's coming up. First up, we have a fantastic interview with Sarah Ely. Sarah Ely is a good friend to Starship Sova. You know, one of these people that just inspired me to get off the ground and to do podcasting. You know, way, way back, Sarah was there at the forefront of podcasting. The bug that got me excited, do you know what I mean, was because of Sarah. And Sarah has, a few months ago, has embarked on this remarkable journey. Sarah was Steve Ely and is going, you know, like through the kind of transgender process. And I just wanted, you know, as a friend, you know, more than anything, I just wanted to ask Sarah, you know, what it's like, what it, you know, what it feels like, just some questions on this whole transgender issues, because I think it's so vitally important that we all kind of listen and, you know, and take heed. And, you know, especially for me, I just wanted to kind of, like I say, find out what it's like, you know, from Sarah's point of view, you know, Sarah just inspired me so much, you know what I mean? And just ignited really the science fiction genre field, you know, and, and I'm hoping this interview just kind of comes over, you know, I'm, I'm not buying, being cheeky, just asking these questions. I just want to, you know, from one friend to another friend, just ask some questions that I find, you know, very interesting. And I think if I can learn and everyone else can learn a little bit more about transgender, I think we all kind of, you know, benefit. We've also got Between the Screens short story by Zach Chapman. Then we have, looking back at genre history, Amy H. Sturgis. Then one more bit of fiction is read by Kate O'Connor. That is all coming into dear show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Don't forget though, this show is sponsored by Octagon Technology. 20 years in the IT business, helping you with your little troubles, your little tr- Man, there's a trouble on my computer at the moment. I'm hoping as well, just kind of, you know, Detracting a little bit from the story that it don't sound at the bottom of a well. If you remember last week, I upgraded to El Capitan and I'm using Adobe Premiere, Adobe Premiere, Adobe Edition on on a Mac, and it just sounded like a, a tinny thing. Oh, terrible! So, Octagon Technology will help you with your little troubles. That could also be big troubles. So. Let us kick off with this fantastic interview. Sarah, you made a decision a few months ago to kind of let go of Steve. So go on, tell us, how, how's this been for you? 
Uh, kind of, sort of. It hasn't been, in my own head, a matter of letting go so much as just taking what, what was for a while sort of a, a, a developing dual identity sort of situation and realizing that I'm actually just more, more naturally comfortable as Sarah than as Steve. Um, yeah, this was, these were revelations that were starting, uh, sometime early in 2014 and we're just slowly, gradually building up, um, that I was just starting to feel more and more comfortable just exploring my feminine side initially, just in very minor ways and just becoming more and more comfortable, um, just like coming out and, and expressing as female um, and developing that side of myself. And I realized I was having more and more fun doing it. Um, you know, initially, and I, I do often, <laughs> not, not just to confuse people, but I do often talk about myself as kind of Sarah and Steve. And, you know, I, I, it's, it's fun to have legitimate excuses to refer to yourself in the third person. Uh, but... Yeah, over time, it was about January of this year that I started asking myself the question for real whether I was actually transgender. Um, that had been something that, uh, once I look back on it, it seemed kind of ridiculous that I hadn't been letting myself speculate on that previously. I think part of it was because I have a lot of transgender friends, and I know that for a lot of transgender people, there is a very strong gender dysphoria story. They're truly uncomfortable in their bodies. They're, they're miserable in the, the gender that they were physically born as. And that wasn't really my story. I wasn't feeling awful as a man. I just happened, I just realized more and more I was having more fun as a woman and I was feeling less anxious and more secure in a lot of ways. Um, and so without the dysphoria, it kind of, I, I felt like it kind of took some courage on my part just to feel like I'm not going to offend anybody else if I start asking myself this question. And, uh, you know, it, things sort of snowballed from there. I'm really interested, you know, in with those kind of first internal questions, you know, for yourself. What was that like for, for you? Do you know when, when you kind of sat down and think, you know what? This is the way I want to be. Do you know those kind of initial mm -hmm. questions? Because, you know, yeah. someone from, say, my side, you know, it's just like, I just don't know how to kind of you would get to that place where you think you know what you know you know what I think it's going to be better for me is is this direction in me like yeah let's try changing sex today let's see how that goes <laughs> right um, I had been like for for a few years now I've been getting deeper into meditation and sort of just trying to exercise more mindfulness and being in my own head some more uh, some of that. Um, shortly after I finished doing Escape Pod uh, in 2010, um, there was some distressing personal stuff. You know, there was a divorce, um, just a lot of life changes going on already. And yeah, part of dealing with the anxiety and the stress that was coming from that, uh, you know, besides actually getting therapy, which nowadays I've come to think probably everybody should, <laughs> um, you know, at some point in their lives. But, uh, you know, besides, besides therapy and besides other, like, good treatment, just exercise and meditation have helped a lot. And uh, it was actually while meditating and while just sort of being in my head and just letting the thoughts flow through that I sort of just not an explicit, like, you know, woo, there are spirits out there getting into my head, sort of other voices or anything, but just a voice inside myself that just... 
sounded like it was there just sort of waiting to talk to me when I noticed a, sort of a feminine trickster spirit kind of thing. And I just started letting myself have conversations with that feminine voice. Um, or should say Steve started letting himself have conversations with that, that voice. Um, and, you know, it wasn't really a name at first, just like I was really calling her S you know, to begin with until things sort of solidified a bit. Um, you know, I told my sweetheart, Allison about this. Uh, you know, she thought it was really interesting. She was having, she started having conversations with her too. Um, it became part of our, our usual interaction. And it was just something that just started gradually getting more and more real. And, uh, you know, it was, it was very reassuring that my, my therapist and my psychiatrist both thought that this was absolutely sane, <laughs> that there wasn't any, it, it wasn't messing up my life. In fact, like she was actually giving me pretty good advice. So it was, it was a healthy thing. It was not uh, a, a typical, like, yeah, multiple personality disorder or anything like that. And I was, it wasn't dissociating. I was perfectly aware of, of what was going on with it. I wasn't, I wasn't kidding myself about anything. Um, but as another voice, it, she became more objective and more real. Um, and it was just sort of a matter of acknowledging that and just gradual small steps uh, to to be more and more in touch with her. Um, you know, Sarah was freaking out, like initially at first about just actually taking over too much and, and kind of like, you know, dominating over, over Steve's life, which eventually is what eventually happened, but not because she really wanted to. It's really more, it was, it was as much what Steve wanted. It's as much the fact that Sarah in a lot of ways feels like a healthier holder, Steve. I mean, it's, it's interesting because was, you know, you say like you had Sarah there. Was there like doubt coming from Steve? Do you know what I mean? You know, when you're kind of, you're getting these initial thoughts and no, no, mm -hmm. that'll, that'll not work. That's not going to happen. Was there <laughs> any of that kind of essence still there or? Well, at first there was amusement and, and it's sort of like, <laughs> well, that, they, you know, I was, I was making fun of myself for, you know, with multiple personalities and things like that quite a bit. Um, and again, it was, it, it was, it was more anxiety on the part of, just spinning out or going, you know, like going too far with this. Um, you know, uh, Allison was very supportive and she was very grounding and helpful. She actually had relationships, separate relationships with both Steve and Sarah. Uh, when we got hand fasted, that's sort of our wedding ceremony uh, that we did last February. Uh, she had separate vows with Sarah than she did with right, Steve right. Uh, later on in the day. So she, <laughs> she sort of married two people with me. Um, and, uh, and yeah, she's been just like equally in love with both of us. Um, yeah, she had more anxiety about the idea of quote, losing Steve, uh, unquote, than I ever really did. And it, it was perfectly understandable concerns. Um, you know, my, my usual answer is Steve hasn't really gone away. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm the, the metaphor, the model of being two people, I recognize as being just a mental model. I'm still one person. I'm just expressing in a couple of different, more and more discreet ways. Um, and the, the female expression has ended up being my default one over time. Uh, but I, in my own head, it doesn't actually feel like anything's been lost. I mean, it's, it's quite, I guess, you know, to, to talk to yourself about it. But mm -hmm. what happens when you just open that door, that very first time <laughs> you just step out? 
Mm-hmm. You, Sarah, you must have had, your heart must have been pounding. You, yeah. Or you know, <laughs> your, your, your relationship with your, your partners, you know, a secure bond. But opening that door that first time and stepping out there must have been rocking for yourself. <laughs> Getting comfortable having conversations out loud with myself. <laughs> <laughs> and and occasionally imparting new information to myself um, and, and learning things from talking to myself. Uh, that was the part that I really took getting used to. So actually, you know, physically stepping out into the kind of real world and, you know, becoming Sarah, th- what has that, has that not been that bad for you? Um, it, it hasn't felt that bad in retrospect. There have been some really scary parts to it, but overall, it's it's not as if, well, just one day I went and bought a bunch of female clothes and just showed up and just told everybody I was Sarah. It's, it's been a series of really of small experiments. Um, yeah, I, I just got back from from camping at this big hippie event. That was where I act. That the same event last year was where I first um, experimented with, like, you know, wearing like you know, dresses as Sarah and just, just dressing as Sarah and doing the makeup in public anywhere. Um, and, you know, Allison really helped me with that. And I knew it was a very safe space too. It's, it's a, you know, the, the burn community. It's like, it, it was, it's a burning man style event, but a regional one. It's called alchemy. It's here in, in the, the Northern Georgia foothills. Um, and, you know, that's, these, this is a very accepting group of people. So I felt like it was a very safe space. It was. And I ended up feeling very validated and very comfortable from it. Um, you know, uh, Halloween, <laughs> a few weeks later, I, uh, you know, showed up at my office uh, wearing girls clothes just to see what kind of reaction I got. And people just took it as a Halloween costume. It was no big deal. Um, but I was surprised at how comfortable it felt. Um, and again, in January, when I really started asking myself uh, whether I was transgender, um, you know, started doing more experiments, kind of going out in public, going out to dinner, shopping, things like that. You know, each one felt like, you know, scary as hell the first time you do it. <laughs> uh, but after that first time, and after you realize that most people, like I, 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 I don't, I don't think that I, I pass like tremendously well, but I don't think I look bad as a girl. Um, but I'm pretty sure like most people, if they look twice, they can tell that I'm trans, but most people don't care. People just treat you as a person. Um, you know, the, the checkout per, like girl at the supermarket, like, you know, just as long as my credit card passes, it's, it's not, a, it's not an interesting detail. <laughs> and so having that validated over and over that, uh, you know, at least in my world and with the community that the, the, the social community that I'm interacting in, it hasn't been a lot of risk. And, you know, like my coworkers, now I'm out full time at work too. And, uh, and they've been fantastic and encouraging and supportive. Um, this is a really good century, I think, to be doing this in. Have you had any knocks then? Has anybody kind of, you know, even people who say you don't know, just said something, anything horrible to you? And how, how have you taken that? Or how would you take that? For the most part, no. I've I've gotten like there's there's one or two trans people. I've gotten like some some like you know hard questioning or criticism or, or gatekeeping from uh, just like the, the validity of my story because it's, even for trans people, it's a fairly unusual story, um, and you know that's that that can be hurtful. But from in terms of 
just the world as a whole and daily life as a whole. Uh, no, I, I recognize I've been extremely privileged and extremely lucky in that I haven't had, you know, my, my marriage on the rocks because of this. I haven't had to fear that my job uh, was in danger. I mean, there, there was already a trans person here at my office when I, like, before I started work. So I knew for a fact it was, it was already proven that this was a company that wouldn't have a problem with that. Um, yeah, a, a lot of people have it worse than I do. Um, and I really acknowledge that. Um, my own experience, however, has been very positive and has been, you know, people, people either don't care or they think it's really cool. And how, how would you feel, Lord? Sarah, are you, are you a strong emotion? Can you, could you keep it all together or would you just flip out and, you know, <laughs> verbally attack them in all sorts if, if it went that way? Nah, I think just, just ending the conversation and walking away. I mean, there's, there's no one, there hasn't been anyone I really need in my life that I need to justify and defend myself to, uh, to this point. Um, so I haven't been worrying about it that much. Um, yeah, I've getting active in the trans community that can be fairly emotion, uh, evoking, um, you know, simply because, as I said, a lot of other people have much worse stories and there's a lot of theory and there's a lot of judgment and such. And a lot of, you know, a lot of people think they know more about it than they do. Um, and, you know, one of, one of my basic principles I've really come to accept is don't argue with other people's experiences. Whatever they say, like their inner story is, that's their inner story. You don't get to question it because you're not there in their head. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's been a real learning experience that way just having having my own not completely boring story <laughs> and uh, and just seeing other people just kind of take it and accept it and just like you know really enjoy by sarah has been a lot of fun um yeah you mentioned emotions yeah hormones have certainly been like interesting with that um yeah i started hormone therapy in mid-july um, which, I mean, that's, that's the first step in actual, like, physical transition. Um, yeah, a lot of people think it kind of jumps straight to, oh, I decided I'm a woman. I'm going to go have surgery now. It, it, now, that, that's, that's always a year or two down the road at least and often longer. If, if for some people, they, they feel comfortable never getting surgery at all. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I've been on estrogen and testosterone blockers since July. And that does do interesting things. Um, the, some of, some of them sound really stereotypical and that makes me, it makes it, you know, seem sillier that, uh, you know, emotions do feel more intense and heightened. It's not that I have more emotions or different emotions than I had before. It's just that they feel, I feel more swept up in them. They feel harder to ignore. Um, I, you know, skin sensitivity has been stronger. Um, I've started growing breasts, which I'm really excited about. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, like, you know, face changes a little bit, things like that. Um, uh, but, but yeah, it's the, any, any changes in emotions or personality feel incremental. They feel more mm-hmm. like augmenting and, and really they just feel like I'm being more directly primally in touch with myself and what was, and with what was already going on in my head. So it certainly hasn't really been anything to complain about. What's, what's it like if, you know, if you bump into someone that doesn't, hasn't known that you've, you've, trans now in the same mm-hmm. what, what's i mean you'll be getting used to it now you mean that'll be happening all the time so you'll probably take it mm-hmm. on the chin or anything but what's people's reaction when they're kind of sarah <laughs> <laughs> um let's see i 
I, I look different enough now, I think. I mean, I've had my hair done and everything else that I, I probably, like, you know, people have to look twice to even recognize me as Steve these days. Um, Facebook has actually been really helpful for that because I've been writing a lot about it on Facebook and most of my friends kind of already got the memo before the next time I even saw them. Um, so um, it's but it, it hasn't it hasn't been awkward. It hasn't been strange. Again, I kind of I trust most of the people I've been in contact with, and for the most part, my trust in them has been fairly validated. Um, you know, when I said we're living in a good century for this, I I really mean that at least at least people who are literate and educated and and intelligent and socially aware, which I've been lucky enough that's almost all of my circle uh, kind of have have heard of being transgender at least and know a little bit about it and are perfectly happy accepting. Um, probably the most awkward thing is when people get pronouns wrong or, or get names wrong and then they start feeling awful and start apologizing and I, I have to reassure and say, no, it's, it's really not a big deal. N- neural pathways take a while to remap. I get it wrong sometimes myself. Sarah, I've got an A3 sheet of paper here, right? And I've got your name wrote, Sarah, 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 about 15 to 16 times. Just, you know, like, get it right, Todd. Get it right. Get it right. But but if you didn't get it right, it's not like I would take that as an insult. Somebody would have to deliberately be trying to deny for me to even think that they were attempting to insult me as opposed to just, like, you know, twitching out of habit. I have a lot of trans friends that I still... You know, because I've known them for 10 years before they before they transitioned. Um, you know, I have to rewire my own brain, too. Um, you know, as most most people are really laid back about that as long as you're just not trying to be an asshole about it, basically. Well, Sarah, let's let's talk about makeup and hair, because I'm an ex hairdresser, you see. And I noticed on, oh, one, I of your, I noticed on one of your Facebook pages, you know, you're saying, you, you were talking about henna and then you were talking about bleach. And honestly, it just kept, I, I mean, it's been about 20, 25, probably 30 years since I was a hairdresser. You know, I went, oh, don't bleach on henna. You know what I mean? No, no, I, I didn't. Um, yeah, I was, I, was, I was doing henna for probably about a year just to make my hair just a, a little bit redder, just a little bit earthier. And, and it, was, it was really nice. And I like that you don't really have to take care of that. But yeah, it doesn't give really vivid colors like actually dyeing your hair does. Um, no, I, I'm, I'm more redhead now, but I'm, it's, it's a chemical dye that it's just a bright, I, I didn't bleach. Um, and I'm not going to until all of the hair that was ever hennaed is, is off and cut off and everything. Cause yes, I've heard that it can make your hair melt or explode or something, <laughs> something awful. So uh, away from, you know, like in the, the transgender and everything, I, I'm, I'm, I'm honestly interested why, you, cause you even say it to yourself, like you walked away from the science fiction genre. And, you know, you kind of, you, you left the skate pod, you built a skate pod up, you know what I mean? This was this something that kind of just focused me when kind of the skate pod come out, you know what I mean? It was one of those mm-hmm. defining moments where that's what I want to do, do you know what I mean? And then, mm-hmm. and I'm still kind of, you know, slogging away there, <laughs> and you, 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 why did you just mm-hmm. walk away from a skate pod, and why are you kind of backing away from science fiction or the genre? Yeah, yeah, no, you've you've still been going like gangbusters, and um, yeah, I am. I'm I'm really loving just how much of the community is, is yeah has has this much staying power. Um, it was 
It was it was really just a, a, a personal decision. Um, 2010, uh, my second child was being born, um, Harper. I, I had a five-year-old already. Um, that felt like I, I kind of wanted to spend more time just focusing on my kids. Um, I felt like I, I've always been somewhat bad at delegating and I, I built up a company that had three podcasts because I, I ran escape pod, but it also kicked off pseudopod and podcastle. And I started feeling more and more like managing that business. I was becoming more of a liability just with my ADD and with being just having, having so many business balls to juggle. I, I loved hosting. I loved narrating. Um, but I was starting to, after five years of doing it, I was starting to feel the burnout. And I, I decided that before I got to a point where I was actively resenting the time it was taking, I wanted to, and, or before the, the podcast really started suffering and losing audience, I, I want to just find other people who had the energy to do it. Um, and, you know, I stayed fairly involved while I was actually years before I finally sold the company off. Um, but, uh, I, I just felt, I felt like I had done a really good thing and I felt like I'd, I'd started something that was really worthwhile and that I'd, I'd really helped make a difference in people's lives. I, I got a lot of really validating email, um, about that and that it was the, the hard part was just giving myself permission, I think, to focus on myself. Uh, for a while. And yeah, I, I didn't mean to step away from writing and everything else entirely. Um, that was just getting really busy for a while. And I've, I've been putting more creative talents into like writing software and things these days. Um, you know, writing is definitely something I might pick back up and get back to. So what about the, the actual science fiction genre then itself? You know, because I noticed like a post, I think you put a, put a post on, it was probably maybe your last one as Steve on Facebook. And it was just saying about the, you know, the kind of debacle with the Hugos. And mm-hmm. it that's for me where I thought, you know, you're leaving it. You know, you're kind of, you're all walking away from, you know, science fiction, this kind of this industry, this genre that's kind of been there. And that's, that's a big thing for me. You know what I mean? It's kind of, I guess, my whole little world, you know? And I was just thinking... I wonder why you've done that. Um, I think it's it's a some of it's a matter of time involvement. Some of it's a matter of that same sort of burnout. I think that I, I'm still reading plenty, um, and I'm still I'm still enjoying everything I read, and I'm still um, you know in, in discussions about it with people. Um, but I, I kind of felt I think like if I wasn't. I wasn't as actively involved in the industry. I wasn't running a market anymore. And I felt like the, the, the longer I wasn't actively contributing, actively running the market, um, the, the less that was really of, of direct value that I had to offer and participate in conversations, um, you know, in public in front of a whole bunch of people with it. Um, so, you know, I, I still read stories to my sweetheart at night, <laughs> things like that. Uh, but I, I, I just feel like it was, it's been okay to just kind of make it a more private enjoyment lately. I'll tell you what I would, I'd be interested to find out. You know, you mentioned about your work and how, how do, does your work? Because you says, oh, the me job is, you know, that everyone's nicer. And you actually, mm-hmm. I think you put on a post that they were hiring. And I just kind of had a little look around, <laughs> you, you know, your company and everything. And I noticed and I don't know, have you ever watched Sir Ken Robinson's The TED Talk where he talks about creativity and where now 
you know, everyone's got a, it's a race to get, like, say, what we call over here, you know, like, see, A-levels, and then you go for your degree, and then is this and mm-hmm. that. And we, we seem to be kind of an upside-down world focused on them. And I just went, went over to your web, you know, like your company's website, and you had to have, I think it was, you know, for any job of, of your company, which, you know, it was a degree that we're asking for. And I was sometimes thinking, is it really? okay. you know, and I was thinking, ah, that would just, for me, you know, Sarah, I haven't got mm-hmm. a thing. Do you know what I mean? All I've mm-hmm. got is like creativity. And that's what kind of Ken, you know, so Ken was saying. There was, he brought up a, about a, a, a little girl who was like, wouldn't sit still at, you know, in the classroom and that. But, mm-hmm. you know, they just kind of, the focus that. And then in the end, she became like the kind of director of a ballet, you know, London, London Ballet. And I was just mm-hmm. wondering with your company, I would have thought it was a kind of new, you know, it's not like the old Vanguard. It's a kind of new company. And I would have thought they might have more appreciated like creativity more than academic. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I actually didn't know myself. Um, I, I hadn't looked at the job descriptions in a while. I, I This is news to me that um, the job description included that a, a four-year degree was, was required. Um, I... I, I'm trying to think about that. We, we're certainly not, say, requiring CS degrees for programmers. Um, it might be that, off of, like, the, you know, in, in a lot of places, even in startups, like the HR people who are putting job descriptions out there aren't necessarily the ones doing the interviews and the hiring. Um, I am personally of a conviction myself that uh, in the technology industry, at least, um, what I'm seeing people care about, what I'm seeing people look at is – like where have you worked just previously or what, what other personal experience do you have with these technologies, with these skill sets? Um, you know, what open source projects might you have contributed to? Where can people see what kind of code you've written? Um, and there's, there's more than one way now to show that you have proficiency in something. And I am seeing a lot more people paying attention to that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm seeing that in this company as well. So I can't, I, I guess my answer is I can't vouch necessarily for the accuracy of those descriptions. Um, you know, we're, we're certainly not a very snotty, you know, sort of place. I mean, we have people of all age ranges, um, you know, just all walks of life and, I think that more and more things are becoming meritocracies uh, rather than ivory towers. And I'm, I'm really happy to see that as well. Um, I know in the U.S. there is more and more discussion that's starting to pick up steam about what really is the value of a four-year degree uh, for a lot of vocations. Um, I, you know, I mean, plenty of people are starting billion-dollar companies that never finished college. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah, I so, know. Uh-huh. Well, Sarah, listen, it's been absolutely wonderful to kind of, to just, to have a chat with you. You know what I mean? Like you say, you're, you're kind of one of my idols there. You know what I mean? You kind of, <laughs> you did, you know what I mean? You, you, you laugh. You're making me blush. <laughs> you did, you know what I mean? You kind of kickstarted my kind of into this and it was just, you know, remarkable. And like I say, you're on a remarkable journey there now. And it was, it's lovely to kind of, you know, just to kind of ask you these questions, you know, so I appreciate that. Sure. Thanks so much. I I have fun talking. Oh so. yeah. Well, I tell you what, I, I noticed as well on Facebook, mind you, as well. I'm always kind of you've got you've just put up a, a picture. Like you say, you must have went to that event. You know that kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you said you would go and camping, and you've got a, a picture up there. And honestly, Sarah, you look as happy as happy as I've ever seen a picture of you. You know, in me 
kind of wanderings of, of Facebook and everything, you know, online. So you. you must be in a, in a really nice place now. Is that right? I am having more fun than I ever have. And I, I, <laughs> I, I, I feel like I have to keep myself in check just telling everybody just how much fun it is to be a girl and all. And it's, it's, it, that's been my experience. I know it's not everybody's experience, but, uh, but yeah, I've been really feeling like I've been finding myself. Um, I've been really happy with it. Um, it's been, yeah, you know, I'm, 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 again, I feel privileged in being able to laugh about it and being able to just really celebrate it. Um, yeah, <laughs> ran into some folks at the, at the camping event that hadn't seen me in a long time and they uh, gave me a great big hug and said, it's wonderful to meet you, Sarah. I really liked your predecessor too. <laughs> and I just, I, I hugged him back and said, yeah, no, Steve was a really cool guy. He never shut up though. <laughs> well, honestly, Sarah, it's been it's been lovely chatting with you. Honestly, thank you so much for for taking the time, you know, and and, and sharing your kind of your little journey there. You know what I mean? Or your, or your mon- monumental journey, should I say? Right. Thank you so thank, much. Thank you, Tony. It's been really good to talk to you again. It's been years. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, you've you've always been one of the one of the friends I was really glad I made in the podcasting community. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah, was, if you ask, of course, I'm going to talk to you. It's, oh, that's lovely. lovely. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you. There you go. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I think for me personally, it was just fascinating, you know, listening to Sarah and, you know, just asking these questions about our journey, you know, along the kind of transgender lines. And, you know, if, if it does one thing and it just brings transgender, you know, issues into focus and we all kind of aware of, you know, everyone's different. That's what makes the world, man. That's what gets me so excited. Everyone, just see the person. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's no labels. You know, there's no black, white, colour, creed, gender, whatever. Just enjoy everything that we kind of have to offer. And everyone brings something to the table that is just remarkable. Do you know what I mean? Totally remarkable. Like I say, if it wasn't for Sarah, I swear to God, I wouldn't have kind of you know, embarked on podcasting. I wouldn't have been kind of sitting here 10 years, <laughs> 10 years later, still sitting here, still excited. Honestly, if it wasn't for my wife getting us a, an iPod, and I was actually late to the game with iPods. And I remember, honestly, you know, yeah, I typed in, I seen this thing, podcast, and I typed in science fiction straight away. Escape pod was there, and this was that was the seed that kind of you know ignited for me my journey, you know, with podcasting, with kind of building this Starship Sova community, speaking to everybody that I have done in whatever 10 years. Do you know what I mean? And you know, personally and truthfully, I think the genre is a will be a quieter place without Sarah. Do you know what I mean? Just brought some kind of amazing ideas and amazing inspirations to the genre and she will be sorely missed you know but we'll carry on so i hope you enjoyed that interview i'm gonna just start adding a few like more interviews just you know like short interviews where just a little kind of diversion from just stories and that so we'll see how that goes i hope you enjoyed that so next up is the kind of one of the main fictions. Like I say, we've got two main fictions, and it is Between Screens by Zach Chapman, which was originally published, like I say, in Writers of the Future 31. 
Zach Chapman grew up on a ranch just north of San Antonio, Texas, where he could see the cows grazing in the pastures from his bedroom window. In 2011, he graduated from the University of Incarnate Word with a degree in English, where he won a College of Humanities, Arts and Social Sciences, English Award for Creative Writing. Well done there, Zach. Good lad. I didn't get many qualifications when I was a little, um, as you kind of... As I was talking there to Sarah, qualifications pass me by. He currently lives in Austin with his librarian wife, Taylor, a cat, a rabbit and a lazy-eyed rescue dog named Dingo. Follow his publication announcements on Twitter and... I've got a little post there so you can kind of go in a little link, sorry, should I say, and go over and follow Zach. Zach, thank you so much for this. This story is narrated by Jonathan Sharp. Jonathan, I don't need to give his bio, but he's just... Cracking with his narration. Jonathan, this is fantastic. Thank you so much. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Between Screens by Zach Chapman. Read by Jonathan Sharp. I was 14 when I first skipped across the galaxy, trying to fit in, trailing the older boys who had ditched class. Cox, the grunge leader of the group, tattooed and modified, ran the skipper code hacker with one hand and shoved me through the portal with the other. One moment I could hear the others laughing. The next, I was in an empty station on my hands and knees, picking myself up off the cold floor, hard racing. I didn't know much about skipping or space travel. I'd only been off Earth a week, but I knew it wasn't cheap. A moment later, I heard the others stumbling in after me, shouting in fear and excitement. We're caught! By who? The pigs! They tracing us? Course, gotta skip and trip the pigs. Lose them, yeah? Sure, sure. I was shoved by three other boys through another skipper, and like that, I was across the universe in another gray skipper station, running from the pigs who were light years behind. They never did catch us, not that first time. Cox made sure of that, rerouting stations with his hand hacker to throw them off. We skipped, racing down long hallways in abandoned stations. We skipped, shoving through dense crowds of business drones. We skipped, diving past upkeep bots. We skipped until my world spun and nausea swelled inside me. When we arrived at our final destination, a claustrophobic cold room, a dozen boys were touching up a rigged cacophony of gerrymandered technology. Some of the boys I recognized from school. Their stares jarred me. I was foreign to them, tan earth skin, natural brown eyes and hair, stark contrast to their pale features. A screen that looked scarcely different from a threadbare bedsheet was draped on one side of the room, A blindingly bright projector shone on it from the other side. Wires and ancient technology, a haze of smoke, the stink of synthetic bliss, and worn blankets and pillows filled the cold room. Cox bumped and pounded two tall, thin, pimply boys who entered some final calibrations on the projector. Ready, ready? The telescope spitting what we need? Sure, sure. The two answered in unison and returned to their work. Their complexions were more corpse-like than the other space boys, and their greasy light hair curled at their shoulders. An image flickered on the screen. It was a black canvas speckled with burning white stars. The projector clicked several times. Then the image zoomed in on a planet, green and blue, much like Earth, but with strange-shaped continents. All the boys quieted. Cox pushed me to the blanket-covered floor and stuck a warm drink in my hand. Drink up, new kitty. The light show's starting. What's so special about it, I asked taking a sip of the burning elixir. The boy next to me hushed me as if I were speaking over some audio, but there was no other sound in the station. 
Boys projecting the light. That's a planet. This ain't no movie. There's a telescope outside of this station. Boys hacked it. Boys real smart with equations. Cox tapped a finger to his temple. Real sharp. Taller ones named Timmet. Others Traeger. Real ugly, but so sharp they're smarter than the teachers we ditched. Sure, sure. That's another planet out there? Hundred light years away, I asked? Cox nodded, irritated, then punched my shoulder. Just watch. I ain't seen it at this angle yet. Sitting, I began to watch, but nothing seemed to happen. I gradually became aware of a hand on my back, slowly rubbing as if to annoy. I turned to look, but the light from the projector distorted my vision. I could make out the shape of a girl, narrow with long synthetic dark hair. In the dimness and blinding projector glare, I thought I saw her wink. She hissed. Don't lose your lunch, new kitty. Before I could respond to her, a gasp from all the boys brought my attention back to the screen. A meteor hurtled for the planet, brown and jagged. The two masses collided, breaths hissed in. A shockwave slowly spread from the impact, followed by a wall of ocean. Cox turned toward the projector and yelled over the silence, Timmet! Traeger! Zoom in! I can't see nothing! The brothers tapped away with their hackers. The telescope zoomed in and our projector followed the shockwave as it ate forests, deserts, and mountains, obliterating all to dust and magma. It zoomed in further. A city came into view, quaking, buildings falling, ants scrambling. Then it was dust too. And then a wall of water. The projector flicked to several other dying cities before the visible half of the planet was devoured and dead. When it was over, the entire room fell silent. The telescope flicked back to the impact site, a circle of red-orange magma, glowing as the tectonic cracks slowly tendrilled across the planet, like stretching skeletal fingers. The nausea from skipping returned. I accidentally tipped my drink over, but no one seemed to notice. Their eyes were nailed to the dying world. Why? I managed to utter. Why did those people stay? They must have known their planet would die. Misguided principles, Cox shrugged. Are just too poor to leave. Not like you, new kitty. If I was rich, I'd still be on Earth, I began, but something buzzing on Cox's hip took precedence. He fumbled at the device, brought it to his face. His eyes widened, pointing his finger toward the skipper gate. Cox started to shout. Boys began to clear the skip station, running, packing up pillows and synthetic smokers and hard drinks. Spilling their possessions everywhere as they jumped through the skipper, Cox jerked me to my feet. Move, new kitty. The pigs have found us. I turned to look for the girl, but she was gone. Cox shoved me forward. You hear me? No time. Then I was skipping again. Cox at my heels, more boys chasing after, hooting. Instantly through space we ran. Abandoned comet drill site. Packed synth stake meat house. Sliding living quarters. Busy commercial district. Gray and dull. A hundred skip stations between. The boys began to split, skipping off into different stations. Pigs in pale suits popped up here and there, never able to crack us with their electronic batons. Though once, right before we lost them for good, one dove for Cox, catching his ankle. I kicked the fat man in his teeth, stomped the hand that had captured Cox, and shoved us both through the portal. When we finally lost him, it was just Cox, Todd, and I. Cox swung a tattooed arm over my shoulders and squeezed. Kitty, you did good. Respect, respect. Did good watching that planet blow for the first time, too. I've seen it five times now. First time was the hardest. But it hooks you, yeah? It's a day later and I want to keep watching. Skip to new stations where the light ain't passed through just yet. See it again at a new angle. Yes, this is what I wanted. Right? Uh, yeah, I said. 
Cox laughed and pushed me forward. You'll see. Go on home. I'll see you at school tomorrow. When I finally found the way back to my living quarters, I could hear Mom crying in her room. She was still grieving over Dad, though she claimed that the sudden weeping outbursts were due to the artificial days and nights, or the synthetic smell of life in space, or some other lie. Luckily, she didn't notice me slip in, nor did she complain when I drowned out her moans by blaring music in my cramped room while I struggled to sleep. The next morning, I ate synth meat for breakfast, rushed out the door before Mom could bring up Dad, and used my school pass to skip to the school station. My first three periods I drifted off, daydreaming of skipping, kicking a faceless patrol officer in the teeth, but mostly about the dying planet. In my daydreams I could hear the people's cries. Why hadn't they left? Surely they weren't so poor they couldn't leave. Who would choose death on a planet over life across the million space stations? At first I sat by myself at lunch, sure that no one would want a tan earther sitting with them. But, to my surprise, Cox grabbed my shoulder and gestured over to a table where Todd, Timmet, Traeger, and a few others from the night before sat. As I joined them, I heard discussions of last night's exploits, rehashing, bragging, hyperbolizing. Cox cut in, explaining how heroic I was when I smashed the officer Piggy's teeth in. After that, the other boys seemed more accepting of me, listening when I spoke, giving the occasional nod. By the time lunch was dismissed, they'd begun planning another show, but this one was something new, not the same dying planet from another angle. Reluctantly, I ambled to class, a dark boy in a scuffed hallway full of skulking corpses, my mind fixed on skipping, wondering what the new show might be. Cox-timided Traeger had kept me out of the loop. In class, I sat in a listing chair, impatiently leaning back from my desk, not listening to some teach chew the side of her mouth. Suddenly, I felt a kick on my tailbone, hard enough to sting. I glanced back. It took me a second, but I recognized the girl from last night's show. She winked a pale blue eye. Her hair was dyed darker than my natural color. It shimmered purple if the light caught it just right. She wore a splash of cherry lipstick, and I spotted tattoos swirling up the side of her neck. A few colorful planets, some stylized stars in a spiraling galaxy, not the sort of ink you'd find on Earth. I raised my eyebrows. Her complexion didn't seem as gray as the others. With a quirked smile, she passed me a folded note on synth paper. It read, You planning on going to the next show? Shit. Did I really want to go? I wrote back, Sure, sure. What's your name? And tossed it back to her while the teach wasn't looking. She responded with, Name's Lem. Next time you better sit next to me. When I looked back at her, I could tell from her crooked smirk that she was aggressive, cocky, vivacious. Though I'd lived on Earth for fourteen years and breathed real air, drank real water, and ate real food, she somehow had lived more than me. I sent back. Sure, sure. After we received the notification to switch classes, Lem followed me to the science hall. I didn't know what to say, so I awkwardly smiled as she complained about the dearth of the girls at last night's show. I nodded like a fool, bumping into other students in between gawking glances. She must have been late to her next class, because I had hardly entered mine before the tardy notification appeared on the cracked screen of my tablet. I remembered nothing of the rest of the school day. I assume I spent it scribbling sketches of dying planets on synth paper, ignoring teachers. After school, I roamed the halls looking for Cox, Todd, Lem, or any of the gang, but those who hadn't ditched earlier in the day hadn't stuck around after school. When I got home, I was already irritated. Mom, her eyes rimmed red, put on a smile for me. 
That irritated me more. I left after dinner, ignoring Mom's silent pleas to be comforted. I paced our sector, subconsciously moving toward the skip station. But without the handy hacker Coxhead, I was marooned unless I wanted to pay. As I roamed, I passed silicon flowers and earthen landscape murals so awful they could have only been painted by someone who'd never stepped foot on the Earth's surface. The bleak, artificial lighting did nothing to uplift my brooding. Why had they stayed? They were ants on our cosmic threadbare screen, scurrying helpless. Too poor? After father had died, mom and I were too poor to live anywhere but the stations. Could it have been different long ago? I asked myself as I studied the awful perspective of a different earthen mural. None of the shadows looked right and the trees were far too thin. Was Cox's gang where I should try and fit in? The mountains looked like triangles, completely inorganic, completely wrong. How long could they go ditching school and skip hacking before a pig bashed them? The sun was brighter orange than that. The sky more blue. This painting belonged on a wasted planet, full of frantic ants. What happens if I got stranded on some station a billion light years away? Trees don't grow in concentric rows, and there's no patterns to the way leaves sprout from branches. Why did they stay? Why didn't they just leave? Over the following weeks, I grew closer to Cox and his gang. We were vines twisting together, using each other to reach a sunspot. Not that any of my new friends would get the metaphor. We poured hours of work into discussing plans over half-eaten synthetic lunch food, spreading news only by word of mouth to those who we knew wouldn't rat, hunting down potential show sites. The station had to have a powerful telescope that the brothers could hack, but it couldn't be in a high-traffic area. I hardly saw Lem in class. I think she ditched more than not, but when I did, her cherry smile brought my thoughts away from indecision. Cox's gang was the key to the light shows, and the light shows were the key to her. She was the most attractive space girl I'd seen, and I'd chase her to far-off galaxies if given the chance. One day, between the first show I'd seen and the second, Lem and I ditched before Earth history class. Using a battered old skip hacker Cox had graciously given me, I took her to stations we'd never seen. We walked through the offices, stealing idle hand tablets, synth papers, and whatever would fit in our pockets. Ran through cafeterias, snatching genuine planet-baked cinnamon bread and rolls with real butter. Laughed in game rooms as we played VRs with what little money we had. In the cold, bleak expanse of our galaxy, I had found light. Back home, I would lie awake on my thin mattress, thinking of Lem's dark hair with its purple shimmer, wondering if she was thinking of me too. It was a nice change from my brain replaying my father's babbling death as fast-acting poison ate his body. I never saw it. The leak at his station was far above Earth, but that hadn't stopped my mind from speculating about his final minutes. Hell, I was beginning to be able to ignore my mom, too, but it wasn't all wonderful amongst the bleak stars. I still second-guessed myself. Joining Cox's cohorts would lead down a strange path. I'd never run with a crowd like that back on Earth, but the stations were different from Earth fit in here, I told myself, I had to run with these guys. On the day we set up the showroom, I ditched class entirely. My whole body trembled in anticipation. This room yawned bigger than the last, and I was one of the first to arrive. Cox unsuccessfully attempted to hang the screen while Traeger and Timmet worked on the projector and hacked a nearby space telescope. Cox caught sight of me. Damn, Arthur, are you scared? Your skin's white as mine. Relax, come here, help me hang this damn thing. Sure, sure. Not scared, excited. Don't drop the screen, your finger's shaking too much. No worries. 
By the time we finished setting up, a dozen boys lay about the floor on insta-inflate mattresses and backpacks, smoking paper soaked in colorful synthetics, drinking delicious toxins from recycled bottles, playing the knockout game. More came skipping in, and girls, three girls, then four, awkwardly watching the boys, but Lem wasn't there. She'd come, I knew, unless she got caught by the pigs. I shook off that thought. She was too quick and determined to be caught. Someone slapped a bottle to my chest. I drank, spilling the burning, icy liquid down my chin. Todd slammed me on the back, hooting. My head buzzed, harmonizing with the hum of the station's electronics. The lights dimmed, hacked. Yet it felt too early to start. More people were passing through the portal every minute. Lem wasn't with them. An uproar of murmurs met the flicker of the projector. Too soon, the murmurs said. Friends on their way, it complained. An image flashed. A volcano bleeding orange and red. More complaints. But what could we do? There's no rewind button on telescopes. Cox stood. Easy, easy. This is a pre-show. Settle your pretty heads. Stash those flowing tears. Tension in the crowd dissolved as we realized the best was yet to come. A wet pinch on my cheek startled me. I turned to see Lem. She snuck in and bit me on the neck, playfully. So tense. Need to relax, Arthur. Let me work your shoulders. She massaged my back. I could smell the synthetic sweetness of her hand-rolled cigarette between her cherry lips. She pulled me to her, touching my lips to hers, and exhaled a remedy, a toxin, a delight into my lungs. My world spun for the moment, her tongue in my mouth, fingers running through my hair. We kissed, her tongue assertive, experienced, mine stumbling and awkward. On the sheet above, magma flickered and flowed. She was my first kiss. Our passion had not worn off when the show started, but we mustered a glance at the screen. The room was stifling with packed body heat. Despite the haze in my head and the pounding of my heart, I made a mental note to tell Cox we would have to scout a larger location for the next show. On the screen I saw a city, old like one on Earth from thousands of years ago. A foreign-looking people crossed streets, drove cars, peddled goods, rode bicycles as the telescope scanned them focusing here and there, zooming in and out, panning. Nothing happened for the longest time. Just as I thought the crowd would begin to grumble, a smoldering light flashed across the room, piercing, hot, so bright Lem and I winced. It was as if the brothers had pointed the telescope toward a star. Then the smoke lifted, and Timid punched past half a dozen filters until we were seeing through the dust cloud, as if it weren't there. Thousands of people lay dead in the streets. Thousands more walked about dying, flesh dripping from their stumbling frames. Buildings had become liquefied skeletons stretching up toward the telescope, some still bending and breaking in the firestorm's wake. Traeger zoomed in on a man burnt so badly his clothes and skin had become indistinguishable. He staggered as if blind and begging. For what? Water? A quick death? His family? His lover? He latched on to anyone who passed, but most shoved him off, or they avoided him narrowly searching for families of their own. They were just as blind, just as naked. There should have been a sappy cry of a solo violin, but there was no sound but the hum of the station and the breathing of its inhabitants. A boy laughed awkwardly, cracking midway. Or was he a man? We existed in that awkward stage somewhere between the two. I felt Lem's hot breath on my neck, soft cherry lips kissing my cheek. My jeans stiffened. I glanced back up the begging, melted man, then filled my existence with Lem. When all the death and dying and love and lust were over, 
No pigs came to interrupt us. The boys slowly trickled out of the skip station, drunk and high, whooping and laughing. Cox, the brothers, Todd, Lem, and I were the last to skip out. Cox smiled at Lem and me. Not bad, yeah? Dark shit. Tell more of your girlfriends to come. Sure, sure, Lem said, smiling. Then off we skipped, losing a friend here or there. Over the next weeks, my life consisted of three things. Ditching class to explore the stations of the universe with Lem, planning and scouting with Cox and the boys, and lying awake in bed, ignoring Mom while dreams of dying cities and planets kept me up. For the first time in my life, I wasn't making straight A's. Truthfully, I didn't know what kinds of grades I was making. Mostly I didn't care, but there was part of me, maybe the same part that occasionally dreamed of earthen fields and real food, that tugged at my intestines. On the occasion that I did go to class, I would sketch. I drew dying worlds on synth paper, colliding meteors, cracking dust, bloody magma, then moved on to cities drowning, burning, screaming, wheezing. I would write captions like, Come see the light show, or Watch the wonders of dying worlds live, imitating movie posters I had seen on Earth. During a scouting trip, Cox saw one of my sketches after it had fallen out of my torn pocket. Cheeky, the Earth is an artist, he said. Later, he commissioned me to draw more, picked out his favorite design, then, in code, jotted down several skip station coordinates and times on the side, copied it, and passed it to people we trusted to spread the word for the next show. At some point, I suggested to Cox that we get a band to play live at the next light show. He and the boys resisted the idea, but I managed to convince them to at least allow music during the pre-show. They agreed so long as I scrounged together the band. I accepted their challenge. Earth was inspiring, full of young musicians and would-bes, but the stations weren't. Luckily, a cramped corner of our school had a music hall, where I periodically wandered between classes. I wasn't looking for the best. We needed trustworthy guys, no one who'd rat us out to the teachers of pigs. It didn't take long to spy a recruit, Rodney, a boxy boy with a shock of dull, blonde fuzz that sprouted in wilting patches on his cheeks. He played saxophone and violin, terribly. An outcast, a rust artist, a pugilist, a perfect recruit. His weak connection to the music hall were enough for me to infiltrate and recruit four more equally qualified musicians on the promise that synth smokers and some heavy bottles would be provided for their services. So the next show had live music. Strings screeched, buzzed, hacked, and coughed. The music was perfect. Rodney and his band played, still making the same mistakes they had while rehearsing thirty minutes before, as two dozen excited cohorts skipped into the current show station. Cox grabbed me by the shoulder, hard, pointed to the band and said, nodding, Hey, new kitty, you ain't bad for a peach-skinned earther. I nodded back, thinking, They call me New Kitty, but I'm no longer an outsider, no more than anyone else here. Haven't been since the skip home from the first show, since I kicked that officer's teeth in. They're shit terrible, Cox said, tossing a clanking rucksack full of bottles at me. But people seem to like them. Give Rodney and M jars of piss booze when the show starts. Keep one for you and Lem. Sure, sure. Two boys broke out in a fight, just as I felt Lem put her arms around me. One of the brawlers fell into a violinist and was thrust back into the clash. People whooped and hollered as the two blackened each other's eyes until one of the bruisers was too broken and bloody to fight, and Timid and Traeger flipped the projector onto a new pre-show. This time we saw a ghost planet, already dead. Skeleton cities, dried canyons where rivers had once flowed, all living things long ago turned to dust. 
I wondered how far away we would have to skip to catch the light and witness of the downfall of this civilization. Tornado lashed the land. Lem traced a finger around my forearm and looked up at me with a devious smile. Your brown skin's turned pink. Give it more time and it'll be as sexy as mine. But in the meantime, it's looking a little bare. What do you mean, I asked. She jabbed her fingernail into my forearm. Let's modify. You're lacking tattoos, piercings, implants. I laughed nervously. What would my dad think? He was dead, and my mother, who cared what she thought? And you have a needle and ink or some rusty implant gun? She smiled. I told Todd to bring some. He's just as talented an artist as you. He's got clean stuff. He wasn't, and he didn't. A violin screeched, a quake split a dead desert, and a needle pierced my skin. I decided on a tattoo of a planet and was told it would look cool. It felt like a knife scraping, cutting, digging at my arm. I emptied half a jar of piss alcohol down my throat, lit a synth cig, and watched the panning ruins of the ghost planet. When the outline was done, Todd snatched my alcohol and splashed it on my arm. The lights dimmed. The show started. Then another show, and another. So we went on, in whatever abandoned skip stations we found for months, our posse slowly growing by word of mouth in the handouts I'd designed. Each show a memory with a different tattoo, piercing, scar, or glowing implant. The pigs busted us sometimes, catching a few kids too drunk, stoned, or slow to skip away. Our light shows became more frequent. We needed researchers who knew when and where cosmic tragedies had happened and people with good equations and techies and musicians. I'd go to school on occasion to recruit. Other than that, school meant nothing to me. The show, everything. Our enclave of misfits grew, as did my bond with Lem, and as I spent the next month skipping across the galaxy with our gang of outsiders, my yearning for Earth waned. The memories of grass underfoot and wind brushing my skin, once vivid, now faded. But did any of that matter? Mom didn't have a chance at getting us back to Earth, and I was too busy seeing new worlds to care if she did. I was in a river, slow-flowing but with a current too strong to fight. Sure, I could swim for the bank, but oblivion was beautiful. The shows began to blur into each other. Sometimes a planet died, war the killer one show, nature the next. Sometimes it was just a city, occasionally a malfunctioning skip station. They mixed like a trillion wisps of smoke commingling, fornicating trapped in a room of flickering light. It was intoxicating, addictive. Tattoos crawled up my arms, piercings punched holes through my skin, flashing implants danced up my spine. Friends came and went, but Cox and Lem were always there, never missing a show. True friends, true cohorts. Then came one show, one particular show, where I realized the dreams of my father's death had stopped entirely shoved aside by the preparation and intoxication of the light shows. It started like all other shows. Rodney's band played as friends skipped in from across the galaxy to a cramped room just warm enough to make sweat bead above the brow. The pre-show flickered, a junk satellite station spinning in and out of orbit, only to be drawn in by its planet's gravity and eaten in fiery gulps by its atmosphere. Lem bit my lip and whispered something in my ear. Timid and Traeger tinkered with a projector finalizing calibrations. Boys who were almost old enough to be men rolled about, kissing girls who were almost women. Somewhere, someone was in a classroom learning something. The screen skipped. I felt a sense of familiarity, earth, and a station just above it, 
round with vast clear windows, greenery on the inside. My stomach nodded itself. When was this? Where were we? How many light years from Earth? One? Two? How long had I been in interstellar space? In the skip stations? How old was I? Fifteen? Couldn't be older than sixteen, but what's a year and a half when you're in a thousand different stations, light years from the embrace of seasons? In my mind's eye, I saw my father on his deathbed, weeping sores covering his skin, just as he was after the rescue team had skipped him back to Earth. He babbled, the radiation sickness frying him from the inside out. On the screen, an infrared filter spotted a solar flare lashed the station like a whip. The telescope zoomed in, masses of doomed men and women pounding at the domed windows. It was a research center, the same one Dad had worked at. What was I doing here, watching people die? I wanted to stand up, to skip off, just leave. Lem felt the muscles in my back tense. I looked down at her hand on my arm, gray. And so was my arm, except for the tattoos all up and down my arms. When had I gotten those? In that sobering moment, I couldn't remember half of the scribbles. An earthen landscape sprawled across my left bicep, horribly inked by someone who'd never stepped foot on a planet. Who'd done that one? Surely not me. Hopefully not me. In the waning light, my tan was a figment of the past, a figment of earth spinning below the domed station on the screen. I was a corpse, just like the rest of them. Not an outsider. And we were kids no longer. I tried to stand. Lem pulled me to her, licked my ear. Baby, it's just getting good. I think I should leave. I could hear her smile. You can't leave. Oh, there you go, Zach, Jonathan. What can I say? Truly, truly remarkable. Thank you so much, and Jeremy. Thank you for finding that, sir. That little gem. So, on with the show. Don't forget, if you want to kind of sign up to our newsletter, there's all sorts going in there, man. I put it out the last time, I think it was last week, and so many people answered back and just get back in touch, man. It's just quite, it's quite scary. You know, you kind of, you send this away and all of a sudden you get like instant replies and instant responses and instant chatters, you know, chatters, instant kind of, you know, conversations, just lovely. So sign up, come on to the front of the website, any website of our the District of Wonders, and it has grown tremendous do you know what I mean and it's going great going so please if you want to kind of join in the fun and just get more science fiction more 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 through your dear that just signed up and there you go so next up is our very own Ooh, Sturgis. Ims. hello ladies and gentlemen it's time for another look back into genre history and before I begin, let me say happy October. It is my very favorite month out of the year, and I'd like to invite you to check out my blog where I'm having my annual, my 10th annual, Countdown to Halloween with texts and excerpts from texts and links to texts and images and all sorts of information and just celebration of the season. You can access that from my website, amyhsturgis.com. Just click blog. My blog is also syndicated at Goodreads through my Goodreads author page. So if you find me at Goodreads, you'll be reading it there. There's also a syndication of my blog on my Amazon.com authors page 
And also, I cross-post those blog posts to Twitter, so if you find me on Twitter, you can also read those there. I'm at D-R-A-H Sturgis on Twitter. So, consider yourself invited to my month-long Halloween party. And in the spirit of Halloween, I would like today to focus on a museum exhibit that I just saw, very relevant to our interests. I was recently in Colonial Williamsburg in Virginia to take part in a professional conference. My other field of work, besides science fiction studies, is Native American studies, and I was there to participate in a conference on the ongoing lessons we can learn from the Iroquois Confederacy. But at any rate, I was in Colonial Williamsburg, and that is just a hop, skip, and jump from one of my very favorite places, so I made time to take another pilgrimage to the Edgar Allan Poe Museum in Richmond, Virginia. The museum was opened in 1922. It is, in part, in the Old Stone House, which is the oldest original building in Richmond. It was built around 1740. And it also has two other buildings as part of the museum and a wonderful garden with a Poe shrine. The museum boasts the world's finest collection of Edgar Allan Poe's manuscripts and letters, first editions, memorabilia, and personal belongings. And it also provides a retreat into early 19th century Richmond, where Poe lived and worked. It features the life and career of Poe by documenting his accomplishments with pictures and relics and verse, and focusing on his many years in Richmond. And there's also in those three buildings altogether, one building that is dedicated to temporary exhibits, which is why it's always worth going back to the Poe Museum to see what is afoot. I was very taken by two of its temporary exhibits this time. One is still open, and I hope some of you may have time in October to go and visit it. It is buried alive. That is, of course, based on the story The Premature Burial, by Poe and Poe's interest in premature burial, and there's lots of fun stuff there. They've also opened a new exhibit, a new temporary exhibit, called The Poe Code, about codes and code breaking in Poe's work. Think of The Gold Bug, for example. Now, what I got to see, besides the great Buried Alive exhibit, was an exhibit that ended just two days after I managed to see it that was just excellent, called Madness, Insanity in the Works of Edgar Allan Poe. Does it get any better than that, or any more October than that? So I wanted to share with you some of the insights from this exhibit, because I thought it was quite well done. The way the museum framed the exhibit goes a long way toward answering the question of how this relates to science fiction, because Poe was very interested in the latest scientific wonders, both in his tales and in the nonfiction that he wrote. And one of the reasons that he portrayed mental illness in such a powerful way in his work was because he had done a great deal of research. It's not a coincidence that the first hospital in the United States that was devoted to the care of the mentally ill had been opened just 36 years before he was born, and in fact quite close to Richmond uh, in Williamsburg in 1773. 
And the exhibit pointed out that some of the research he did in order to portray aberrant psyches may have been sort of up close and personal because there were people that he knew, people that he knew of, who sadly did suffer or may have suffered, were reputed to suffer from mental illness. So the exhibit considered how Poe wrote about mental illness. For example, in his parody of 19th century psychology and treatments for the so-called insane, the system of Dr. Tarr and Professor Feather, readers get this, quote, Monsieur Maillard, it appeared, in giving me the account of the lunatic who had excited his fellows to rebellion, had been merely relating his own exploits. This gentleman had, indeed, some two or three years before, been the superintendent of the establishment, but grew crazy himself, and so became a patient. Then there is the narrator of the black cat, who mixes a somewhat schizoid personality with lots of alcohol, not a good combination. So the readers get this, quote, I grew day by day more moody, more irritable, more regardless of the feelings of others. I suffered myself to use intemperate language to my wife. At length, I even offered her personal violence. My pets, of course, were made to feel the changes in my disposition. I not only neglected, but ill-used them. But my disease grew upon me, for what disease is like alcohol? End quote. And, of course, there's the narrator of the imp of the perverse, who is bent on his own destruction. Quote, I felt a maddening desire to shriek aloud. Every succeeding wave of thought overwhelmed me with new terror, or, alas, I well, too well, understood that to think in my situation was to be lost. I still quickened my pace. I bounded like a madman through the crowded thoroughfares. At length, the populace took the alarm and pursued me. I felt then the consummation of my fate. Could I have torn out my tongue? I would have done it. But a rough voice resounded in my ears. A rougher grasp seized me by the shoulder. I turned. I gasped for breath. For a moment, I experienced all the pangs of suffocation. I became blind and deaf and giddy, and then some invisible fiend, I thought, struck me with his broad palm upon the back. The long-imprisoned secret burst forth from my soul. So who were some of the people Poe knew or knew about who were allegedly insane? One of them, identified by the exhibit, was Polly Marshall, who was married to Supreme Court Chief Justice John Marshall, who attended Monumental Episcopal Church, where Poe attended as a boy. Polly Marshall was known to have, quote, an extreme nervous condition, end quote, lifelong, but she later in her marriage suffered the death of one child and then miscarried another, and after that she was essentially housebound, and watched over by a servant who was hired for that responsibility. And this became common knowledge. In fact, Thomas Jefferson's daughter, Martha, even wrote to her father, quote, Mrs. Marshall, once Miss Ambler, is insane. The loss of two children is thought to have occasioned it, end quote. 
a very sad story. Another very sad story, one that touched Poe more personally, was that of Jane Stith Craig Stenard. She was the mother of one of Poe's teenage friends, and Poe was always sort of in search of a mother figure, his own mother having died when he was very, very young, and his adoptive mother suffering from long illness before also dying when he was young. And in Jane Stenard, he found not so much a mother figure as sort of his first crush, his first experience of what we might call puppy love. He idealized her and thought greatly of her. She was kind to him, but she was also known as sort of a melancholy character, one who was reputed to have fits of depression. Her sadness attracted Poe all the more, and he wrote to Helen for her, which goes like this. Helen, thy beauty is to me like those Nicene barks of yore, that gently, o'er a perfumed sea, the weary, wayworn wanderer bore to his own native shore. On desperate seas, long wont to roam, thy hyacinth hair, thy classic face, thy naiad airs, have brought me home to the beauty of fair Greece, and the grandeur of old Rome. Lo, in that little window niche, how statue-like I see thee stand, the folded scroll within thy hand, a psyche from the regions which are holy land. According to accounts at the time, Jane Stannard went insane, although this might be explained as symptoms from a brain tumor manifesting. We do know that she died when Poe was only 15. She was only 31. But we don't know exactly what she died from, which means the mental illness might in fact have been related in some way to her fatal illness. And speaking of sorrows very close to home, Poe's younger sister, Rosalie, had some sort of mental issue. She was said to have stopped developing by her teens. According to her neighbor, a Susan Archer Weiss, quote, Edgar developed into a brilliant youth, as much noted for physical beauty, strength, and activity as for intellect and genius. Rosalie, as though some mysterious blight had fallen upon her, gradually drooped and faded into a languid, dull, and uninteresting girlhood, apathetic in disposition and weak in body and mind. Her figure, naturally delicate and well-formed, drooped as lacking strength for its own support, her hands generally hanging listlessly at her side. Her eyes, dark gray like those wonderful spiritual ones of her brother, were weak, dull and expressive only of utter vacuity. She was accustomed to sit for long intervals gazing upon vacancy, and when aroused would answer to an inquiry, I wasn't thinking at all, I was asleep with my eyes open. She looked indeed as she often said that she felt, but half alive. The exhibit also theorized about real people who might have inspired directly some of Poe's characters. For example, the twins who were children of Luke Noble Usher, yes, last name Usher, who was an actor who performed with, and was actually a good friend of, Poe's 
actress mother Eliza Poe. Those twins were named Usher too, James Campbell Usher and Agnes Pye Usher, and they are believed to have gone insane. And perhaps there is a connection there between those Usher twins and the Usher twins of one of my very favorite works by Edgar Allan Poe, The Fall of the House of Usher. A real-life model for the monomaniacal narrator of The Telltale Heart might be the murderer James Wood. Poe reported about Wood's killing of his own daughter in the April 1st, 1840 issue of Alexander's Weekly Messenger, and there he wrote that Wood displayed, quote, cunning of the maniac, a cunning which baffles that of the wisest man of sound mind, the amazing self-possession with which at times he assumes the demeanor and preserves the appearance of perfect sanity. Poe doubted that the man could ever be reformed, predicting, quote, a perfect sanity for months or even years would scarcely be a sufficient guarantee for his subsequent conduct. A time would still come when there would be laid to his charge another, although hardly a more horrible, of sudden violence and bloodshed, end quote. Just fascinating stuff. What a great exhibit this was. It ended with a discussion of past discussions of Poe's sanity. And there was some good material there, including the point that the Phrenological Journal blamed Poe's mental health on the fact his mother had the poor taste of choosing to be an actress. So, needless to say, I was very happy to catch this temporary exhibit before it left, and I highly encourage you to check out the Poe Museum. You can find it online at poemuseum.org, and you can find it in real life in its brick-and-mortar, and stone for that matter, splendor in Richmond, Virginia. Remember, in the month of October, the temporary exhibits Buried Alive and The Poe Code are going to be showing. And I do hope you will drop by my blog in one of its formats and check out my Countdown to Halloween as well and help me celebrate the month of October. I look forward to joining you again very soon for another look back into genre history. Thank you. Amy, 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 what can I say? This is your month, isn't it, October? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Do pop over to Amy, like what Amy says there, with any of her kind of, you know, outlets to kind of, our writings and that you know the the month of October is fantastic and if you kind of follow Amy what she's doing and everything like that there's some amazing posts up there so please that would be fantastic so last but by no means least is the main fiction and it is read by Kate O'Connor Kate O'Connor was born in Virginia in 1982 she graduated from the Emory Riddle Aeronautical University Prescott in 2009 and now lives in New York area. She's been writing science fiction and fantasy since 2011. Her work has mostly appeared in Austin Scott's card, in the Galactic Medicine Show, Daily Science Fiction and Escape Pod. You see how Sarah has inspired so many people? In between telling stories, she flies a aeroplane. Oh, 
buys aeroplanes, works as an archaeological field tech and manages a kennel full of air deals. Wow, man, you have your hands full there with them air deals. Kate, that is amazing. This story is narrated by Krista Sayora, and it is just beautiful, just amazing. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Red by Kate O'Connor. Anna sank down next to the graves, setting the sandy shovel down beside her. Her hands were blistered and oozing. She rubbed her palms against her gritty jeans, barely noticing the sting. Her last act as a loyal daughter was finished. It wasn't the cemetery plot her parents had planned for, but the beach behind the house was as nice a spot as any. The salty breeze cooled the sweat on her face and arms, making Anna shiver. It had been desperately hard getting the bodies down the stairs and out to the beach by herself, but there had been no one to call for help. The Red Plague had overrun their small town, just like it had the rest of the planet Thule. Everyone she knew was sick and waiting to die, or already gone. She shook her head. It had been barely three weeks since the first case. The sky was a clear, perfect blue above the cerulean waves. Her parents had died within hours of each other, Anna sitting on the bed between them like she had when she was little, clutching their hands and trying not to hear them gasp for air. A tickle in her throat caught her by surprise. She coughed once. Her pulse thudded in her ears. Her throat didn't hurt. It may be nothing, Anna told herself. She looked down at her bare arms. Her skin was free from the livid red blemishes that characterized the plague. She coughed again. Anna got to her feet, blank resignation settling over her again. The spots never appeared right away. She hadn't escaped after all. She picked up the shovel and started digging a new hole tucked between the two occupied graves. I'll come back before I get too sick to move. It was beautiful by the sea. Hold her. The faceless hazard suit hovering over Anna spoke with a woman's calm, competent voice. Gloved fingers bit into Anna's shoulders. Her red-spotted fingers clutched at the steadying hands for a moment before her body jerked and twitched out of control again. After countless agonizing minutes, the tremors settled, leaving her limbs heavy and her head swimming. She sucked in a deep breath. It bubbled thickly in her chest, choking her. She gagged and coughed. Warm, viscous liquid trickled over her lips and down her cheek. Her heart was racing so fast she could feel it in her fingertips. She needed air. Are you sure about this, Ginny? A man's voice spoke from behind Anna's head. Yeah, she's the closest match we've found. At the rate this disease is progressing, we won't get another chance. And you, John? Are you sure? The words flowed over Anna as she struggled to breathe. She could barely see through the darkness creeping across her eyes. Yes, the man's firm voice answered. This has to stop. He lifted Anna's shoulders, cradling her head with gentle efficiency. The woman pulled something small and metallic out of her bag. The device, hanging on a thin, silvery chain, sparkled in Anna's dimming vision. Ginny slipped the chain over Anna's head and pulled her shirt collar down enough to settle the object against her chest. 
It was cool against Anna's too hot skin. There was a soft beep. Twenty-seven hours, John said, sitting back on his heels. Better than I thought, but not as long as we'd hoped. Anna took a tentative breath. For the first time in two days, it didn't trigger a coughing fit. The feeling of drowning was fading, and her head was clearing. She sat up slowly. She felt weak and tired, but in control of herself. It's a stasis generator, Ginny explained before Anna had a chance to ask. It's meant to be used if a disease control doctor contracts the illness they're studying. It suppresses the symptoms until they can get to somewhere the disease is treatable. So you can help me? Anna clenched her hands against the hope that surged strong enough to hurt. They must have found a cure. They had to be trying to keep whomever they could alive until they could get it distributed planet-wide. It was too late for her family, but Anna didn't want to die. No. Ginny shook her head, the suit exaggerating the gesture. In twenty-seven hours, the field will fail. You'll be contagious again, and the plague will pick up where it left off. I'm sorry. The warm sea breeze ruffled Anna's hair. She pulled out the generator and turned it over in her hands. It looked like a little stopwatch. The glowing purple display was counting down. Anna tucked it back under her shirt. She felt better. She didn't want to believe she was still dying. Then why use this thing on me? So the Red Plague won't spread across the galaxy, Jenny said firmly. We need your help. What do you mean? Anna wrapped her arms around herself, hugging her shoulders hard. Thule was the test site. Jenny exchanged a glance with her companion. John nodded for her to continue. The Centauri Cooperative wanted a bioweapon that could spread quickly, kill fast, and burn out in a month or two. Looks like they finally have it. Why us? Anna grit her teeth so hard her jaw ached. Thule was, had been, a thriving colony world. More than a hundred million people. They were only loosely connected to Centauri and had nothing to do with any of the four other factions fighting for dominance and survival at the center of the galaxy. We don't even have a standing military. It was convenient. Thule is owned by Centauri-based investors. It doesn't produce much in the way of essential exports, and it's not a threat if enough people survive to complain. The investors will be compensated, and the loss written off to a mutated, planet-born disease. Anna shook her head. Convenient? So what do you want me for? She wondered if she shouldn't be more skeptical, but after everything that had happened, she felt beyond disbelief. The Eidolon is in orbit. Ginny spoke in a matter-of-fact tone that Anna didn't quite buy. Centauri has influential people from across the galaxy aboard, along with the scientists who made this thing, waiting to celebrate the success of the project. We want you to go aboard and bring them the Red Plague. Why not just infect yourselves if you're so desperate to kill all of your co-workers? Anna spat out, anger rising through the numbness she'd been living in for weeks. Disease control workers are dosed with amnesia serum before they're sent into situations like this, John answered calmly. They shoot us with the catalyst when we get back to the shuttle, and we forget everything about what happened planetside on the ride back to the ship. 
It won't affect you, since you didn't get the initial dose. But if Ginny couldn't remember why she was wearing a stasis generator, she would never release herself from quarantine. For this to work, we need you to pretend to be her and clear yourself through. Don't they have a cure? Anna felt like she was missing something. Making a bioweapon without an antidote seemed monumentally stupid. No, Ginny shook her head. Too many bioweapons have been rendered useless when the cure is stolen before they have a chance to be deployed. Centauri didn't want to run that risk. Do you really think they just won't start again? They had already proven themselves capable of destroying worlds just to test their new weapon. Anna couldn't see how a ship's worth of dead government officials would stop anything. If you can manage to infect anyone on board, there is every chance that the Red Plague will be judged too hard to control. They might try something else, but they'll be back to square one. It might be years before they get this close again. Ginny paused. And it's the only chance you'll have to show them what they did here. Anna stared out towards the ocean, breathing in the familiar salt air. A month ago, she would have happily said that revenge solved nothing. Now? She didn't know. You really want me to go kill a bunch of people? Do you want this happening somewhere else? John shook his head. Believe me, they won't stop now that they have a working weapon. It's not just about Thule. Anna wasn't sure she could look anyone in the eye and make them suffer what she had. Ginny had said there were powerful people on board the Eidolon. Maybe there was another way to make them stop. I'll go, she answered finally, but no one will ever believe I'm Ginny. Ginny was older, her eyes wider set, and her nose was smaller. She might have passed for Anna's sister, but that wouldn't be enough to fool anybody. John picked up a mask from the costume shop downtown once we decided on this course of action. Ginny held out a thin, gray veil. We had to find someone who looked enough like me that we could program it to make up for the differences. You're closer than we thought we'd find. As long as you can keep the stasis generator hidden, there shouldn't be any problems. It will work. It has to. Anna put on the veil. It fitted itself to her face like a second skin, with holes for her eyes and mouth. She glared at Ginny and John. It was hard to stomach that they had only helped her because by some twist of fate she looked close enough. John leaned over and adjusted the settings, looking back and forth between them. Ginny smiled and unhooked the seals on her mask. Anna lunged forward, shoving the older woman's hands away from the fastenings. You'll catch it! We don't have an extra suit, and I can't return without one. Ginny drew a shuddering breath and reached for the mask again, pulling it off and setting it down beside her. I'd rather die here than on the ship. This way... I'll remember why it's happening. They were throwing a party. Anna flung one of Jenny's pillows across the small room as hot tears seared down her cheeks. It had almost been more than she could manage to keep her expression blank when they had handed her the invitation on the way out of quarantine. The Red Plague had been such an unqualified success that everyone had been invited to the ballroom to celebrate. They would dance and eat and laugh while the last of the population, the last of Anna's people, died on the planet below. 
Anna ducked through Ginny's drawers, looking for something appropriate to wear. It seemed Ginny was, had been, a practical woman. Most of her clothes were utilitarian and neat. Not what Anna needed for a fancy party. At long last, she dug out a vivid emerald green dress. Anna shed her clothes and slipped the garment over her head. The fabric was smooth and perfect. It was nicer than anything she had ever worn. She studied herself in the mirror. The dress was a bit big through the hips and chest, but it would do. Not a bad dress to die in. Anna hooked the chain of the stasis generator back around her neck. The little clock hung down between the neckline of the dress. She tucked it between her breasts. After the shuttle ride and twelve hours of quarantine, she only had four hours left. She stared at the image in the mirror. Ginny's face looked back. Anna tugged off the grey veil. The stasis generator hadn't been able to erase the hollows under her eyes or the body left gaunt by weeks of caring for dying loved ones and battling the brutal disease herself. I'm glad I'm here, she thought viciously. I'll give them all something to celebrate. She didn't want to go in. Now that it came down to it, Anna wasn't sure she was ready. The anger she had felt when she had gotten the invitation had faded a little. Most of the people here had just been doing their jobs. They had families of their own. If she went back to the quarantine now, she could die in there when the stasis field gave out and she became contagious again. But then, Centauri would have its weapon. Anna hovered at the threshold, undecided. The veil was firmly settled back over her face. The ballroom sparkled with peach and amber light. Crystal dripped from the ceilings and walls and glittered from tabletops. The Eidolon had obviously been outfitted to cater to top-of-the-line dignitaries. "'May I, perhaps, escort you in?' Anna turned and found herself nose to chest with a brilliantly orange shirt. "'I, um...' She took a hasty step backwards. The man's well-shaped lips quirked with amusement. Their eyes locked, and Anna felt her cheeks flush. She wondered if it would show through the mask. "'Okay.' Anna took the offered hand. He tucked her fingers under his arm and swept her into the ballroom. People on either side of the entrance stopped talking. The silence spread until all eyes were on them. "'Welcome, everyone!' His strong voice echoed across the lodge room. "'Don't worry, I'm not going to bore you with a speech. That'll be for the official welcome when we get home.' A chuckle rippled through the crowd. "'Just let me say, good work, everyone. Enjoy the party.' He waved and turned back to Anna. "'I take it you're... Anna paused, not sure how to continue without sounding stupid. Someone important, she finished lamely. Marcus Prospero, at your service. He gave a mock bow. Then you're... The leader of the Centauri Cooperative was David Prospero. President Prospero's son, he finished for her. Sorry, you must get that a lot. He shrugged. Yeah, Years of working my way to the top of the military's best bioweapons research team, and the most important thing about me is still which family I was born into. Poor little rich boy. He grinned ruefully. Enough of that. You haven't told me your name. It's Ginny. Anna's stomach dropped down to her toes. Head of the bioweapons team. She studied him with new eyes. He was still handsome. 
but the attraction she'd felt so strongly a few minutes earlier was dying. It was his plan that had done this. His fault. He was the reason everyone she loved was gone. Care for a dance, Ginny? He held out his hand again. I would love to. Anna noticed how beautifully the sunset orange shirt set off his smooth, dusky skin. She took his hand, smiling up at him as fierce emotion bubbled in her chest. If she could find a way to talk to him, maybe there was a chance for these people to understand what they had done and stop it from happening again. Anna stared around in wonder as Marcus opened the door onto the balcony. She knew there had to be something keeping the air in and the vacuum out, but she couldn't see it. Force field, Marcus spoke softly in her ear as he walked up behind her. The balcony floor was nearly transparent. Anna spun in a delighted circle. They were surrounded by stars. It's beautiful, she whispered, forgetting about everything else for the first time since the plague began. Yes, Marcus's arm settled around her waist, dragging her back to the present. Anna slipped out of his grasp, crossing the balcony to look planetward. Thule's pale moon was hanging above the dying planet, pure and serene. Doesn't it seem the least bit cruel to you? He looked at her blankly for a long moment. The Red Plague? It's a quick killer. People who catch it don't suffer long. We needed a deterrent that would make anyone think twice about attacking Centauri again. It took years, but we finally managed to build one. What about Tule's people? Anna couldn't look at him. The pride in his voice turned her stomach. Sometimes, impossibly hard things are necessary for the greater good, Marcus sighed, looking tired but resolute. So you would do it again? Anna realized she was clutching the fabric of her dress so hard her knuckles were white. Someone has to be strong enough to make the hard calls, Ginny. I'm trying to protect as many people as I can. Yes, I understand, she answered, thinking that she finally did. Would you mind getting me a drink? She breathed a sigh of relief when he agreed. For a few short hours, Anna had wanted to believe that she could talk to him, tell him her story, and he would change things. He was a good man who was willing to do almost anything for what he thought was right. It was heartbreaking to realize there were so many lives that would never be part of his greater good. When he was out of sight, she checked the stasis generator. Seventeen minutes left. She could still make it to quarantine if she left now. Here. Marcus was back sooner than she would have liked. Anna took the drink he held out to her. And here. He flourished a delicate violet flower, tucking it gently behind her ear. Anna froze, terrified that he would feel the veil. His hand dropped, and she could breathe again. Thank you. We grow them in the hydroponics lab, he grinned. They're totally useless beyond being pretty, but everyone loves them anyway. And they make for nice decorations at impromptu parties. Anna took the flower out from behind her ear and twirled it between her fingers. Her dad had grown something similar in their window boxes. He had tried to teach her, but Anna had never been any good with plants. When you were little, what did you want to be when you grew up? The question slipped out. I wanted to be a starfighter, he laughed. You know, fly around beating bad guys and saving the universe. 
Still trying for the last part, I suppose. What about you? I wanted to be buried by the sea, Anna answered. There were other things she'd planned to do with her life, but none of that had mattered since the day the plague arrived on Thule. Ginny and John had found her collapsed on the back porch. Even that close, she hadn't been able to make it to the grave she had dug for herself. She shook her head. The stasis generator beeped softly, muffled by the fabric of her dress. Anna took a shaky breath. It was time. Marcus was looking at her with an odd expression on his handsome face. Anna walked towards him. I'm sorry. Livid red blotches were appearing on the backs of her hands. She clenched them behind her back. What? He hadn't noticed the spots. He was looking at her veiled face. She kissed him, sliding her arms around his neck. He kissed back. Anna pulled away, turning her head to the side out of polite habit as she coughed. She looked down. Dark blood spotted her fingertips. Are you okay? Marcus put a concerned hand on her shoulder. Anna shook her head, straightening up and pulling the veil off of her face. Her breath was already coming shorter. My name is Anna. I came here from Thule. She looked into his shocked eyes, trying to remember how she had felt when her father had started to cough, when her mother began bleeding from her eyes and ears, all mixed up with the sound of the shovel scraping wet sand. It was hard to feel righteous as fear blossomed on his face. Marcus stumbled backwards, falling through the balcony door and into the ballroom with a shout. Anna followed. All eyes turned toward them. Stop her! Marcus fumbled at his belt, pulling out a gun and aiming it at her with shaking hands. Several people jumped forward, grabbing her arms. Go ahead. Anna sagged against her captors, a wave of dizziness making the room spin. It won't change anything. She coughed again, choking and retching until blood spattered the front of her dress. Someone screamed. The hands holding her pulled away abruptly. Anna staggered, barely keeping her feet under her. The room erupted into a frenzy. She turned and walked towards the far door, half hoping Marcus would shoot her and end it before the plague finished its job. The shot never came. People milled around, trying to keep from touching her. Orders were being shouted and largely ignored. Anyone who had worked on the disease knew it was much too late. Anna found herself lying on the floor, unsure of how she had gotten there. Her lungs were burning. She closed her eyes. She would sleep a little and then go down to the beach. Her parents, all the people of Thule, were waiting. They go, big thank you to Kate. Kate, thank you so much. And Krista, what can I say? Big hugs all round. Thank you so much. Just fantastic. Again, thumbs up, Jeremy, lad. I don't know how he does it. He's, Jeremy has... Give us a little kind of hint of someone who's coming on the show, like a story by someone. And man, just God, one of my idols. One of my idols. So that is Starship Sova's 406, was it? I think, I think so. I hope you enjoyed it. Like I say, just remarkable to kind of st- talk with, you know, Sarah and just kind of find out, you know, how she feels, how it, how, what it's like for someone who's going through this, you know, this incredible journey. 
And, you know, everyone who's kind of taking part in the story, thank you so much. Don't forget, Octagon Technology sponsors the show. Um, but if you want to help, by God, give us some funding to keep going. That would be amazing. And the the newsletter, come on and sign up and just kind of get more, kind of, you know, we're just kind of developing it all the time. So I hope you enjoy it. So that is today's show. I do hope you enjoyed it. Stick around and I'll see you next week. Until then. Just like to say, I got all that wrong, did I? That kind of gobful. I'd just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Story Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening.